and want like you know they want you to make Facebook, you know, this huge, epic type size thing. It's kind that of like most a- of my clients. <laughs> yeah, I was so, going to say that's, well, then you that's just- never <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Harvest. I used Harvest to track time, track subcontractors time and invoice clients. Their time tracking is really simple and easy to use. Invoicing includes a pay now function by credit card and PayPal, and you can sign up at getharvest.com. Use the code RF to get 50% off your first month. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Evan Light. Hi. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and... This week, we're going to be t- answering the question, can you be agile as a freelancer? Um, this was a question off of our forum. It has one comment. basically says, um, so much of agile is about working in teams, but we need it mostly for clients' communication. How much of the agile process do you expose them to? And although I like tools like Pivotal Tracker, I wonder if there's a conflict between the point-based estimation and the time-date estimation that the client wants. Oh, this is a better question than I thought it was originally, now that I know the details. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like there are a couple of points. One is is that most of the time when we're freelancing, we're not necessarily working in teams. And, and then the rest of it is about client interaction. I think the, the first point, I think, depends. Because in my case, I end up either doing, well, actually, I end up coming in usually doing mentoring, either remote pairing or improving their code base. So I'm usually a kind of staff hog. I'm just teaching a lot of the time as I go. So I usually am working with a team. Occasionally I have my own team, but usually I work with a team. Right, so, so most I, of the time you're collaborating with some other developers one way or the other. I, I've done both, so I, I, I'll, well, I'll, I'll certainly talk about both as we go. But um, when I'm working with a team, then if they don't have an agile process, then, then damn it, I make them eat one. <laughs> <laughs> How does that usually go over? I'm, I'm kind of curious now. They get indigestion. Uh, by degrees. <laughs> Seriously, I think I've said a bunch of times, change is hard. So um, it takes time. It's not easy. Um, and my ability to influence and gently is improving slowly. So, yeah, at first they would get indigestion because I had to force feeding them. Right. Um, well, it's also no. outside change versus inside change. Some people, like yeah. the person that hired you loves the idea that you're going to bring in change, but there's got to be a, a fair number of people that are always suspect of some exactly. big consultant that's coming in with a yet another process and is going to leave so- and... So I'm experimenting. Well, I mean, we, we're always trying new techniques in general, right, as, as freelancers. And this time, this particular project, instead of trying to influence the whole team, I'm trying to influence their lead engineer who's then influencing the whole team. So I'm doing it behind the scenes. And so far, that seems to be um, bearing some fruit. Yeah, that makes it, sense. It appears to be coming from the inside to the rest of the team, but I'm, the, I'm instigating and there seems to be less resistance so far. They seem to be adopting some process. Before, this client used to um, reprioritize features on a regular basis such that there'd be a lot of churn and there'd be a lot of half-done features. And not only was that driving me crazy at a personal level, but I felt like that they were just wasting their money because of all the overhead associated with all that context switching. So um, I pushed it. That's one of those things that doesn't just drive you crazy. I mean, that's more of a... 
a culture thing, right? I mean, if you spend half a week or a week and a half or whatever it is, part of your iteration working on something, and all of a sudden you get a change in focus halfway through when you're just about done, there's very little things that are more demoralizing than that. Yeah, and there's this one particular feature that comes to mind that we've had two different hurry-up-and-waits on, where it's, okay, okay, we want this, and then we get most of it done, and oh, well, we actually don't need it just yet. We need to do something else. And right. so it's been finished twice now. So that was the point where I basically virtually sat the lead developer down you know, on Skype and, and talked to them about the, the churn and the reprioritizing and got them. They're starting to use Trello now. I said, you know, we don't, the tool doesn't matter. Just use you know, three by five cards on a whiteboard, but we need something so that way you can point to management and say, this is what we're doing. This is what you want us to do. If you, we have, you have us do that, then we're not doing this anymore. And then we lose productivity. And he's finally starting to get some headway because of that. So it, it, as I said, it's an experiment. It's hard. Some companies, some organizations, some people respond better to you know, a so-called expert who's an outsider. But um, just as you said, Jeff, I think there's that degree of suspicion if it comes from the outside sometimes too. It, it depends. Yeah, a lot it depends. I mean, and some of it's just validation. They, they're not necessarily – it depends on who hires the outsider. Sometimes people are utterly clueless and hire an outsider to try to fill them in. Sometimes – they have an idea, but they're not able to get buy-in by themselves. So they're trying to bring in somebody outside to, to corroborate their findings. I think CJ might have said something about this a little bit on the last um, podcast. That there are kind of these two different situations, right? There's the one where they already have the answer, but they just don't have the wherewithal to follow to start or follow through with it. And the other one is they don't have the answer, and you need to give it to them, and you need to get them to implement it. The second one's a lot harder. And yeah. the second one seems to be that case where an outsider coming and telling them you have to do this isn't going to go over very well because they're doing something completely different. Um, and that's where it seemed that my feeling and my experience, at least on this particular project, is I've got to sell them. On, I have to work through an intermediary who's already on the inside because coming at them from the outside saying, damn it, you need to be doing this is just me being pushy contractor. Whereas – if they already knew what they should be doing, if it was clear that, that, that they knew what they should do, but they aren't doing it, then applying pressure would actually stand a chance of working, I think, as an outsider. So that, this, that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, and this is an interesting, interesting discussion, and that's probably not at all answering the question. But again, you want to get in, you want to infiltrate different parts of the organization too. Because if you can pair with sort of the grunt developer and introduce him to maybe TDD if he wasn't doing it, or a TDD right if he wasn't quite doing it right, and show him guard or something else, then sort of light bulbs click for him. And then if you talk to the lead dev or the product owner in a different way and say, it's a week, we'll give him a week in an iteration, and the world's not going to end in a week, we'll finish what we're doing, and then change the next week. And it makes everybody's lives easier if we do it that way. So it's Completely it's interesting. The only reason, the example I gave, this was just so it doesn't sound descriptive to people listening. This is a very small development team. So there are basically two full time developers and me. So the lead developer is one of two guys. Oh, there you <laughs> I, go. I'm totally with you on that. I, I've tried a little bit of that before, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm working in a little bit different situation where um, we, we've had some influence on the development team, but we're kind of working in 
parallel with them. And uh, yeah, we're, we're meeting resistance because, you know, our philosophy and their philosophy is completely and totally different. And um, they're afraid that if we succeed, that the company is going to change the way that they approach software to do things more along the lines of what we're doing. And so it, it feels a whole lot more like a competition. And I think that's a situation that you kind of want to avoid if you're going to affect real change. Yes. And there are two problems there, right? I mean, the first one is, and so forget the adversary part, the adversarial part of it for now. But if you, so there, if you have two different philosophies and you're working with a team and you don't touch that often in code, but when you do, it's really painful because maybe you do TDD and expect the build to be green and they don't necessarily do TDD, so they're changing stuff and then they merge in their code and you've got to figure out what they've broken or what tests they didn't update. And that's just, that's really frustrating from a, an outsider standpoint to get to deal with. Yeah, that's definitely true. So um, what if it's just you? What if it's just you, you're the team, just one guy? Can you still be agile? <laughs> it's hard to pair if it's just you. But, but I mean, that's not all agile is either. So... I mean, I think and it depends on the project. I mean, uh, for the most part, I'll, I'll TDD regardless of what it is I'm working on, unless it's some throwaway spike that I'm just playing with. But for most code, for most client code and my production code, I'll TDD. And I pair when I have an opportunity to. I'm not, personally, I'm not huge with into pivotal or anything beyond like simple list for tasks that I have to do if it's on my own I don't don't do burn down and measure velocity and well, have a stand up and I'm with myself but I mean can we go back a second here because this is this is actually my big problem when someone says are, are you doing agile or not is agile's not really defined I mean what Jeff's talking about is a bit of scrum uh, TDD I think came out of its stream programming I mean most people, when they say agile, there it's like a bucket of forty or fifty different processes or tools or things, and some people have different things in their bucket. So, I mean, I think it might be better if we go back and define like what is actually agile, or when you're talking about it, what is no. your definition? Can't go back and define agile. That that would be the whole call and then some. I <laughs> I, I, I go saying exactly what you were saying there. I guess the fair point for the listener. I, I completely agree. Agile is is a catch-all term. It's a bit buzzwordy. There's a reason there's this huge entity called the Agile Alliance that, that makes gobs of money at running conferences. It's you know, because it's so nebulous, people can just talk and talk and talk and talk about it. So I'm sure we all have slightly different notions of what Agile is, although I think, I suspect, just as, as you said there, Eric, that most of us subscribe to something that's vaguely Scrum-like. With yeah. may or may be doing EDD as part of it. Yeah, my, my thinking on Agile is more the principles as opposed to the practices. And the practices are things that help you achieve the principles. If you look at the Agile Manifesto, I mean, there are four big points there. Um, there are actually eight points where it's, you know, we value this over that. But um, the big things are individuals and interactions, working software, customer collaboration, and responding to change. And so it really doesn't say anything in there about um, Scrum or, you know, what tool you use or anything like that. 
Um, and, and I think really if you're being agile as a freelancer, then you're working to, you know, maximize and, um, make the best of the interactions you have and the individuals you're working with that you're making sure that you're delivering working software as, as frequently as you can, that you collaborate well with your customer and that as the plan changes, um, that you're able to adjust and make sure that you can, um, that you can deliver what, what needs to be done because ultimately, ultimately, you know, things are going to change. Things are going to move out from under you and you need to be able to adapt to that. I don't understand how as consultants, as freelancers, we could not do agile Unless, yeah, gonna... you, unless you are a ginormous business like a Lockheed Martin or something that, that does enormous fixed bid contracts, customer interaction is you is critical to just just keeping the client for one thing. But then if you start getting down into how do you manage features, you know, what features go in, when do they go in and whatnot, then you have to have the customer interaction unless you're doing waterfall. You have to have the customer interaction. So, you know, people over process you kind of or interactions over whatever. I can't remember the manifesto off the top of my head. Interactions and, and people. Oh, blasphemer. Are critical. <laughs> um, I want to go back for just a second, though, and address the first question, because I think everyone talked about their, their particular approach to Agile-like process and, and how they work. And I just wanted to go over mine real, real, real fast if I could. Um, I tend to use tracker. I'm, I'm not married to it, but I like to have something where I can prioritize things. And mostly I use it as a, a guesstimate of my schedule because my estimates in the whole tend to be reasonable within maybe plus or minus 20% or so. So it's, it's helpful for me in terms of projecting schedule and giving the customer some expectations about when certain, certain features are done. Um, I, I've learned not typically not to expose the customer to, to tracker if I can help it unless they're extremely technically savvy because it's usually confusing for most customers. Um, I have had a few that are technically savvy enough that they understand it. And instead I just try to have you know, meetings with my client where I discuss what, what I'm going to be doing and, um, and any particular questions that I have along the way. But to me, one of the most important parts is showing regular progress and what I do there. And I think we've talked about this in various um, episodes is I usually have a staging server where I'm deploying routinely so the customer can see what's at least what customer facing features are being implemented or modified as the change is happening. Um, so that way they can get feedback quickly and they can see you know, things are happening because that's the one thing that the one thing I've had most clients worry about from having been burned with other client, other contractors is that they'll pay money and basically nothing will happen. So yeah. as long as they see regular progress. Yeah, and, and I think that that falls in line probably with what a lot of us are doing. I mean, I use Tracker. I do a lot of the same things there, um, you know, and I, I try and follow as much of the agile process as I can. I mean, I, mean, I don't have standups with myself, but I do sit down and say, OK, where am I at? What what still needs to be done? Um, Tracker really helps with that. Um, you know, you do a lot of the other things, retrospectives. You know, I do that on my business and on the different projects as far as what's working here, what's not working here, what do I need to do differently, and how can I adapt to what I've got? And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think you're doing a lot of the right things there. What, what were you going to say, Jeff? I was gonna, Back to the original question and sort of Evan's comment. I mean, I don't think, I don't think you can be a successful freelancer or that you can survive that long as a freelancer without being maybe more agile than 
agile in air quotes than somebody else. I mean, just from a communication standpoint alone, I mean, it's one of those things you can sort of brush a lot of stuff under the carpet if you're an employee and hide it away. But I mean, as a freelancer, I think that just maybe you're more under a microscope and maybe it's just a client that I work with. But I mean, I'm typically before this big contract, I mean, it's typically me or me and like one other person, really, really small team. So it's really transparent what's getting done. So see, I mean, I think Evan said it like, kind of making the assumption that everyone's doing this, like everyone on this call, but I actually don't. My process is completely different from how your guys is. Like the way I look at it, and I mean, I I think I have called myself agile before, but I stopped. It just, it does, without a definition, doesn't feel right. But I do what the client wants or what's best for them. And that could be, I have a client where they have a bug tracker project management system. I'm in there every day. I'm working with them, you know, fast updates, development server. But then all, all the way down on the scale too, I've had a couple contracts where they just send me an email with a bullet of points of like, this is what we want the software to do. Just tell us when it's done. They don't want the constant interaction. They don't want to see stuff as it's going. You know, it's so to me, the agile part is I'm able to adapt to whatever the customer needs. So if a customer is busy and they don't want to be very interactive in the project, I can adapt to that. If they want like daily standups, you know, burn down charts, all that, I can adapt to that. And so kind of to me, like that's how that's how I run it. I you can call it agile because to me, the dictionary definition of agile. Like outside of software, that seems agile to me, but I don't think that's like agile software. Well, it's big A versus little A. Yeah, I don't know. To be pedantic, sorry, Evan. Yeah, sorry. In terms of adapting to how the customer communicates, um, in fact, I'll go so far as to say that when the customer is not particularly communicative, they're not going to be my customer very long. If I can tell that they're going to be that way up front, then I don't work with them. I, I just if if I don't. If I can't have regular communication, regular feedback with them, it's just not going to be a good project for me. I know that. So I just don't want to go there. I have yeah. to say that I generally agree with Evan on that just because it's it's really hard to make sure that you're delivering what the client or customer wants if you're not able to get that feedback. Okay, this is this is the direction I've gone. This is this, you know, is this what you meant here? And I mean you can get some clarification up front, but it it's not always easy to do until they actually have something they can see and click on and move through and test out. So Yeah, and I mean, maybe that's just a difference in how I work with clients or the different uh-huh. standards I have. I mean, I've, I've seen bad experience of that where, you know, you go away and you come back and the customer's like, that's not what I wanted. But I've had some good experiences, especially with one client who he basically said, look, I'm busy. I, I lost half my staff. I'm having to do all their jobs. I want you to do this. I trust you. I think you can. You know what we're, we're doing here. Do it. We'll check back in a week or so and adapt from there. You know, so it's not a constant like sitting down with the customer every day thing. And it might just be that I had trust built up with them, and so it was successful, and it was a fluke. But I don't know. I mean, it's just I have a completely different experience with a lot of this. I mean, yeah. trust is a trust is a big thing. I have one client that I would be happy working with them like that. I mean, they're the type of person that we could talk about a feature or a couple of features and I'd go off for a couple of weeks or a month and come back and fairly certain that I'd be pretty close and if I wasn't, they'd understand and tweak a little bit, but it wouldn't be fly off the rails and threaten not to pay and all that other stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's all actually, about knowing your customer. 
And then, I mean, let's be honest here. It could just be difference in scope. I mean, if Evan's saying, like Evan and Chuck are like, you guys have to talk with the customer every day. If you're doing like UI work or stuff that the customer's seeing and touching, they're going to want to give you feedback. But if it's someone like that's wanting to, you know, implement SMTP, the whole protocol from scratch, like the client, there's not much interaction for them there. The end result is that does it work? And so, you know, it might be that we have different size projects or different, like, you know, we're working at a different level of abstraction. Yeah, that's fair enough. The other thing is, is that I, I'm not talking about talking to him every day. I have one client that he's coming up on wanting to have a beta of his project out at the end of the month. And so we're kind of interacting pretty much every day over email. Um, I have another client that we're also reaching kind of a beta stage with him. And I interact with him every few days. But a lot of my clients, it was, you know, every week, maybe every two weeks where it was, okay, here's the feature, you know, I'd get it deployed up um, or get parts of it deployed up. And then, you know, it was something where he was using it every day. And so if he noticed something, then he'd let me know, but we wouldn't actually sit down and talk about it for, for a week or maybe two, depending on what the, what the issue was or what the feature was. So, so I think there is some uh, play there, but if they're just going to give you the whole mess, um, which is several months worth of work and basically say, hey, let us know when you have it all done. That doesn't work for me just because um, it's it's usually complicated enough if it's more than a month's worth of work to where you need the interaction throughout the process of the entire project. Otherwise, pretty- you're, you're going to put in several months worth of work and you're going to be off in the wrong direction at least some of the time. This is pretty much what I'm saying too. I, I, I don't mean literally every day, most of the time, um, unless it's all customer facing sort of things or unless it's critical business logic sort of things. Um, but I expect to have regular communication with my client, usually at least a couple times a week. And when a client can't even make a phone call, this is the kind of thing we've talked about before. You know, it irks Jeff. It drives me crazy. When clients can't miss a meeting or they're really late for a meeting, if this is, and if it happened, and if we are supposed to have a meeting twice a week and they goof up both of those or they just can't make one of them, if, it beca- if, if this becomes a trend in a very short period of time, if I get a few data points, then that's usually it. Because usually that just tells me that what they're doing is they're trying to throw money at the problem by through me, that they're throwing money at me to make their problem go away. But if they don't have the time to explain to me what the problem is, then I know I can't solve it for them. Well, what bothers me, and I think what you're describing is more, uh, they've set an expectation or we've agreed on an expectation and they're not living up to their end of the bargain. Essentially. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that's really it for me too, is just, you know, where are we at? How much do I need to be interacting with you? Um, how involved do you want to be? And, you know, if, if we're not, if we're not on the same page and it makes it really hard to communicate. And scope, I agree with Eric. Scope is another one, especially new versus existing stuff, right? I mean, nobody really has any idea what they want new software to be. Yeah. And it will all change no matter how good you are the first time the client sees it because they can't communicate and you can't understand what they want. So You can't mind melt. Well, the other thing is, is that a lot of times there aren't terrific tools that, that give them a good medium for communicating. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to explain something to you in words or through an email that basically is trying to describe some visual or UI element or some, you know, something like that where they're going to interact. 
And so it is, it's really hard to communicate in the first place until there's something that both of you can look at and, and be in the same headspace on. It's even it's, worse than that. Cause sometimes a client will just see a working app, even though that they've agreed to everything and it's exactly what they want, but then, or exactly what they said they want. Then they try it and they say, Oh no, but we, ha- th- th- we don't like this. We have to change X, Y, and Z. So yeah, you I wanted to do sometimes. like, I wanted to do just like how Basecamp does this. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> come on. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's always fun too. Then you have to go in and pick apart. Okay. So do you want this feature or this feature and this feature of, you know, the overall thing that you said you wanted? And, but and some of it is they shouldn't be the ones designing the software either. I mean, if it depends on what you're building all of this. And this is probably way off topic at this point. But <laughs> I mean, if they have a problem, they need to be solved. They need to explain the problem and what's going to solve it or how they think they might be able to solve it. And then let someone... Come if, up we're with some ideas. To, if, if we're going to get into the, the bitching about clients portion <laughs> of the conversation, th- th- this is always the fun part, too, because um, I've seen that before, too, where you talk about letting the clients design the software. I've had some situations where I have you know, a really good designer come along and he designs this UI for them. And, and then the client will come in and say, no, we, we need a picture of like uh, two people shaking hands. And the designer gets me off uh, on a separate phone call right afterwards. It really, they want to put a stock photo on my design. <laughs> he wants to kill Because <laughs> we all know stock photos are the devil, right? <laughs> it, it depends. E- even there. Oh! <laughs> let, let me jump in on this for a minute because... I mean, some stock photos are, are visually compelling, but most of them are, I mean, if they look staged, if they, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, most I totally agree. Do. They're awful. Well, well I mean, if you're talking I mean, about stock photo as in, you know, good looking woman with headset on smiling towards camera. Yeah, exactly. if you're talking about stock photo as like, this is a stock picture that someone's selling online. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a difference. I mean, I call them the you know, good looking women smiling at the camera photo versus stock. Cause stock can encompass stuff like I and use stock photos. It's a catch all term and the designers I've worked with do too, that any, any generically bland image that you can either obtain for free or buy is a stock photo. If it has no direct bearing, if it was not made specifically for your business, it is to some degree a stock photo. Right. But the thing is, is you can find stock photos that, look and feel natural they're not cheesy that uh you know are applicable and kind of get your message across so well that's the thing i think and this is now we're getting down the rat hole that a lot of stock photos don't really say anything at all yeah you guys shaking hands on a businessy web page what the hell does that say (laughs) yeah or you have the puzzle pieces that have that one word you know whatever that word is you know and you can you can get any number of those for the the right word and what does it mean? It means that you have puzzle pieces. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did anyone else have anything more for the let's bitch about clients portion of the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and move over to some of the other aspects of agile. Um, one one part of this question was also. Um, how much of the agile process do you expose to your client? So let's say you're dealing with a non-technical client. I mean, how, how much of your agile process do you let them in on? Do you talk to them about iterations? Do you talk to them about estimating things with points? Do you talk about the tools you're using, like Pivotal Tracker? I almost never, ever talk about points. That's the easiest one for me to discuss. Because no matter what it is, everybody boils points down to time. Yep. Yep. So Completely. I just don't even bother. 
I, I usually wind up putting my client on my Pivotal Tracker project, and they almost never look at the point estimates anyway. And if they okay, are... But do they even look at the Pivotal Tracker project in general? Right. Some do, some don't. It depends on the client. But the ones that do, they're usually... I mean, all they're looking at is that that one's bigger than this one. And so they don't ask me, how many hours is three is, is a three? My, my biggest... Th- Jeff, sorry. I was just gonna say my biggest thing is trying to move folks off email onto anything else. I don't care yes. what else it is, but just that's a good point. Especially if it if it's ever gonna be more than me and one person, because then you just don't have the conversation history. People forget to CC all or whatever reply all, and it's just so much easier to put it in one place but then you get the problem eric describes or that everybody tries to solve with email in and out of the message track or the issue tracker so they can still live with it in email and you can live with it on your end and i don't know i've mixed success but the way i see it is email is both a tool and a communication medium i mean if Mm -hmm. you're trying to do your project in email as the communication medium, it's it's going to fail if you get to any kind of complexity or you have more than two people. Using email as a tool is fine. Like if, like Jess said, if you can email whatever you're using to run the project and people can use email to interact with that end tool, that communication tool, that works. And so that way, if someone else, like if you want to use you know the website, like Pivotal Tracker or whatever, for the tool, or not, sorry, for the communication medium where all the stuff's at, that's pretty easy and it's kind of built for that, you know, versus email as a way of getting information in and out of it. But the problem is, is people don't make that distinction and they kind of think that you have to be both use either Pivotal Tracker or email or Basecamp as both sets, you know, both the way to get information in and out and the way to actually communicate and have discussions. Yep. Yeah, I agree. If, yeah. Anyway, I don't have anything to add. The thing with Pivotal, I mean, I... Mike Gunderloy, there are a lot of people that love Pivotal, and I'm sort of, I could go either way on Pivotal. It doesn't matter to me. But, I mean, he went through, at some point, I think he had a couple of videos to explain to clients how to use Pivotal. And I guess it explained some of the other bits of jargon that you have to know, like what an iteration is and what current and backlog mean and all this other thing, all this other stuff. But... I mean, it's hard enough. I mean, and other tools, like internally, I'll probably use Chili Project more than I would use um, Pivotal Tracker. But I mean, that's even a more horrible experience, in my opinion, for a client to try to look at. I mean, it depends on their experience, but if Excel and Word and email are their tools, it's, it's a tough sell to make them go to some crazy new system. My experience with Pivotal Tracker and clients probably is going to sound ironic here, but I, I think that there might be some kind of lesson to be learned. It's that the clients who I really want to be interacting with Tracker rarely do, and the clients that I generally don't want to be looking at Tracker are the ones who like to spend the most time in it. <laughs> that's, that's been my experience. And I don't think that that's... I don't think that that's really commentary on the tool itself at all. I think that's really more commentary on that there's no such thing as a perfect client and that either you're going to have a client who's too interactive or not interactive enough. And th- th- that's the only thing I can garner from it, really. They, there's been there, I've only had one client before where they wanted to use Tracker and they just couldn't quite wrap their brain around it without a lot of explanation. And that's 
I think that's kind of partially why I've gone to where I'm flexible because it's I've I've used Chili Project as my main system, but I, it's not a requirement that my clients use it. And so I have clients that use it to varying degrees. Some people use it just to get the emails of what I'm, what I'm working on. Some people actively go in and manage the issues and manage all the projects. And some people don't log in at all. And so, I mean, that's the kind of thing, like if I, if the client I can tell and they kind of said like, I don't really want to learn a new system. I don't want to put the, the time in to learn it right now. I could say, okay, well, we'll manage it through email. I'm going to use this system. It'll send you updates of emails. You don't have to do anything other than read the email. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's like I don't have to like force fit people into something, if, especially if they don't want to learn it, but also yeah, if it's, they don't feel adapt, comfortable. You adapt them to your process through email and use email to talk to Chili Project. Yeah, email I, or whatever. I mean, I one client uses um, a wiki page and just makes links huh. to, I want you to work on this, I want you to work on this, and it's, you know, uh, what is it? Ordered list. So it's just like this is the first one, second one, third one, and that works. We use that for I think like eight months straight. In yeah. terms of in terms I, of tooling, that's that's the one. When you said you're flexible, that that's where I tend to agree with you. That if if I show up on a project or I'm working for a client and they already have a lot of tools in place. Um, and they have some kind of process, the very first thing I try to do is try to adapt to their process and their tools. And it's only when I run into things that are full of fail that I, 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 I will clamor about making a change. Like I worked with one client that was using um, a piece of software that maybe you guys are familiar with this, so I'm sorry, called Rally, which in my <laughs> opinion is the absolute biggest piece in terms of um, issue tracking of any piece of software out there. Worse than like Bugzilla? Yes, wow. far worse, far worse than Bugzilla. It's a giant turd, <laughs> and you have to pay money for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've I've looked at Rally, and I, it it just seemed like there was way, way, way too much there, um, for it to be useful because you had to basically understand this wide breadth of functionality to do a very simple task. Well, they were one of the first round of. Scrum as software management tools or whatever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was Rally and I don't know. There was uh, one in ASP.NET or something. There were a couple like Rally very early really, on. I didn't. That, I guess it explained some. It never grew up. Yeah. Well, what is it? Yeah. I think Alatison or whatever they had one. Yeah, Alatison. Um, yeah, or maybe it was like an add-on to Jira or something like that. Honestly, I don't think Jira is a little heavyweight, but I kind of like it. I've Jira? always kind of liked it. Yeah. J-I-R-A. What is Confluence? Confluence is the wiki. No, but yeah. I think Jira has like an extension or a plugin to add in like yeah. agile type stuff. They're nice things. Jira was one of the first tools I'd seen that has wiki-like features. I mean, GitHub has been doing this for ages, but when you mention an issue by number in Jira, that it automatically well, link to that issue. Ages is a relative thing because... Yeah, sure, it is. Yeah, one one thing that I've done is I've actually put together videos for my clients on Pivotal Tracker and GitHub, and usually it's just, uh, hey, this is how I'm going to manage your project, and if you want to interact, here's how you interact with the system. And so it, it, it it's a real basic just walkthrough on what what all this stuff means and in general, you know, how you can make make it make sense um for whatever you care about so i mean evan said at the beginning right tools are not going to solve your problems no so no it's your it's your the problem is in your 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 process and in the way that you communicate yep so um there was another there was another tools will get in your way though but they're not going to solve your problem yeah at best they just facilitate the process but usually they just get in the way (laughs) 
Well, yeah. I mean, I can't use another word other than tool, but I mean, tools are a lever. Like if you have something yeah. great, like look good, they can make it great. If you have something, eh, okay, it could turn it shitty. Yes, like implementing any, any web app in Java. Ooh. <laughs> so there's another part of this question, um, and, that, and this real quick is just uh, point-based estimation versus time-based estimation. And I time. think we've talked about this before, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, how do you like translate I said, that? it doesn't matter. Everybody translates it. I mean, even so, the long term contract I'm on, there are 20 people on the team. Uh, we do a stand up every day, it's less than 15 minutes. We do demos on Tuesday, iteration planning on Tuesday, uh, retrospective team of teams on Wednesday. And we estimate, and one point is half a developer day. So, automatically. You're already in time. You figure it out. I mean, because, well, an iteration is 10 points. It's five days or five, two halves a day or whatever. So you know. So it's easy. Big projects, 10 points. Little project, one, two points or whatever. So even if you go the complete abstract green frog, whoever said that, some XP book or whatever, I mean, they'll figure it out. I mean, Clients will drive you to tell them hours no matter what because they want to schedule. Well, I mean, most, especially if you're doing hourly work. They want dollars. Yeah, most clients don't even want hours. They want to know their cost. The only reason why they might want hours is to know schedule. Like if, if you could just magically take schedule and it's like it will be done at this time, they would want it in dollars. Like how much will this cost me and is it going to get done? And so... I, I don't do points. I've I tried it once and I hated it and the client hated it and I abandoned it since. I might use, I'll use estimates, but I might use other things like, like, so I use estimate ranges. Like if it's going to be a big thing, but I know it's going to be, I'm pretty good on my estimates, it's just going to take a lot of work. I might say like, okay, this is 14 to 16 hours. But if it's like a really unknown issue, I might say, okay, it could take anywhere from four to 32. Mm-hmm. And so they can see the uncertainty there for the scheduling side. But yeah, I, points, I mean, it's like whose line, the points don't matter. Yeah, for, for me, I, I tend to just estimate things in points in Pivotal Tracker just because I can. But for me, it's more about relative size. And then if the if the customer actually wants a time frame, then I'll sit down and I'll estimate hours. And, and I do something more along the lines of what um, Eric is talking about. And I'll, I'll say, look, you know, if everything goes to plan and there's nothing here that that's wonky then it'll here's how long it'll take and if if things go horribly horribly wrong here's how long it'll take and you know just make reasonable estimates on kind of a best case and worst case and then and then they can kind of go from there and and i usually tell them look you know some of these are going to go horribly horribly wrong and some of these are going to go better than expected so it'll all even out and so you can expect it to be somewhere in the middle if you're lucky can't i basically can't talk points with the client because between one and three points my points essentially equal some number of hours but because i use the fibonacci scale when i use tracker i like to use a fibonacci scale now in general when using points Mm -hmm. anything over three points is big enough that any number larger than three so a five or an eight is really more an indication of general uncertainty Right. And if I have an eight, that's my ultimate, I don't know what the heck this is really supposed to do or how the heck I'm supposed to do it yet. And therefore, the point estimate means nothing in terms of the schedule other than that it's a huge risk. Yeah, that, an eight for me will also indicate you, you handed me a huge bucket full of stuff. 
and right. I need to pull everything out of this bucket and stick it in the ice box, and then I can start to tell you how long it's going to take. So for, for me, until I can dissect everything down into three or fewer points, if I'm using points, then the estimate doesn't really mean much of anything. Right. Yeah, it doesn't always necessarily for me represent things that I don't that, that are unknowns, but sometimes it's just a long enough list to where I can't possibly quantify it just by glancing at it and saying that this is how long it's actually going to take. I have to break it down. Mm-hmm. Same. So, so it could be that, or it could be there, there's a big blob in here and I have no idea how to touch it right now. So yeah, I, I happen to agree, but, but for me, they're completely separate things, the, the points and the hours. And, uh, I estimate them differently. I, I have to do that just cause they mean different things to me, but yeah, you know, and, and sometimes you can do that kind of estimated thing where you're saying, you know, one point is a couple hours and two points is half a day and three points is a whole day and four points is, you know, whatever. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. And see, I use that just for my estimates. I mean, I, my estimates are half an hour for some simple stuff. One, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. Now, if I'm saying it's 128 hours to do something, that's, I mean, the confidence is out the window. It's just like, here's a random number I picked out of the air. <laughs> and I, I make that clear to a client. It's like, here's the estimate, but I am not confident it's going to happen in this. There's too many unknowns. This is just a guess. If you want to figure for scheduling, we might need to revise the estimate up later as we get into it. And most of my clients know that. I mean, I've only done, I think, 164, and I don't think I've ever done a 128. Most of the time when they see like a 32 or something, they're like, wow, that's a lot. That's going to take a bit of time. And we end up breaking it out like Chuck was saying, you'll split into different things and then do the smaller pieces where you have more confidence in each individual part. Yeah. And then it also helps when you're breaking it down because you can then basically hand them back a list of the little pieces. And sometimes they'll come back and they'll say, okay, well, um, that big bucket I handed you, we actually only want these handful of pieces out of the whole thing. And so it can help them kind of quantify what they want and, and, and remove things based on how important they are. So, so it works out both ways. But again, it comes back to that communication thing. I've never had to do, I don't think I've ever had to do a ton of estimating. I mean, I, I never get, I never get a client or I don't think I've had a client where we've had to estimate like months worth of work or something. I mean, it's always been fairly small. But before uh, before I switched over to freelancing, I introduced Scrum to some to where I was working, and we tried to do T-shirt sizes, and that worked all right. But that was still a hard sell. But I mean, the idea was known and trivial to I don't know known or unknown, but not that big a deal. And then the epics, and that's we either spike on it or figure out how to break this up. But I thought you were going to go all Donald Rumsfeld on us and have you know unknowns, unknowns. <laughs> no, no, Ucknucks. Yeah, and, and that's that's another thing I think that is a viable or a valid point is that a lot of cases I'll have people come to me and they're like, I want this huge monstrosity app built. And so they have like every feature they've ever dreamed of putting in it on the list. And a lot of times I'll look at them and I'll just basically say, um, why don't we just go with what absolutely has to be in the app? And then we can talk about the other features later on when we know what we have. And in a lot of cases, we can kind of break things apart then and uh, do things that make a little bit more sense and, and get it down to where it's only a month or two's worth of work that you're estimating instead of, you know, four, five, six months, a year out that you're trying to estimate because you really have no clue where it's going to go after a couple of weeks. Yeah, and I kind of mentioned that when I think when we're talking about working with clients in the very one of the very first shows, 
but also, you know, if someone comes to you and they're a new client to you and want like, you know, they want you to make Facebook, you know, this huge epic type size thing. Kind that of sounds like most a, of my clients. Yeah, I was so, going to say that's, well, then you that's just, never <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> I mean, what I do is I will, if they're like heart set on it and they want something like that, I would try to set up a stage thing where it's like, okay, let's let's spend a week maybe two weeks work together on this do the very basic feature or do like a spike where it's like you just want one one component of it and not only will you be able to see like if they can work with you but you can also like decide like yeah this this client's just going to want this huge thing they're not going to want to they're not going to constrain themselves or actually be realistic about schedule and workload wise and if you can kind of keep it to like a one or two week commitment, you can just say, sorry, we're not good fit. We shouldn't work together and move on. I like mm-hmm. that idea a lot. I, I really do. Because I've, a, a f- I've had a couple different clients this year where, where we signed contracts. I start working with them. And within the first couple of weeks, I realized this is just going to be a horrible, horrible mess. I have to get out. And then there's one client I passed on lately where I just had the sense it wasn't going to work out. It, I could have taken the gamble. But it seemed too likely that it wouldn't have, and with something like that, it would have been it try try before I buy, I guess approach. <laughs> really, they buy, but I take your meaning. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, it's a you know thirty eight day free trial type thing. Well, yeah. not free necessarily, but yeah, yeah, they, everyone pays, but it's yeah, it's because the thing is like you could you know before the project you can talk with someone and everything could be you know roses and ponies everyone seems happy but actually in the nitty gritty of like hey we need more money we need more time or this will not work the way you want it people are going to get emotional people might get upset and how they handle that and how that gets communicated and all that that's that's what's going to make your project a success or failure and i've found time and time again short little prototypes especially if you can do kind of the riskier ones We'll bring that to front. And so someone might say, yeah, this prototype completely failed, but they handle it in a good way. And you're like, okay, we can work together. Yeah. Now I'm, I want to stop real quick. Um, I know Jeff has a hard stop, hard stop in about 10 minutes. So uh, I'm going to let him share his picks if he has any, and then we'll get back out and talk about the topic a little bit more before we wrap up. Do I do have a pick. It's um, Mr. Reader on the iPad. I think I mentioned this before. But uh, so I was looking for a, so the big thing for me, all the RSS consumption drives the newsletters I curate. And so the big thing for me is I used to always do it on a desktop client. I've used Net Newswire and Vienna to varying degrees of pain on the, mm-hmm. on my desktop. But I've, I've wanted to move to my iPad so I can do that sort of consumption curation wherever I happen to be and not be tied to my desk to do that. And so Mr. Reader, it seems to be that tool for me for a couple of reasons. One is it supports multiple Google Reader accounts, which is awesome for me because Ooh. I can separate every newsletter feeds into their own account and have an account for myself for just junk I want to keep up with. And the other thing, and I don't know if this is a new feature or not, but the trick for me was getting it out of the reader and into some place where I could deal with it later. And Mr. Reader lets me send it to OmniFocus. And so I can send a feed to OmniFocus and assign it to the project related to the newsletter. And so it just shows up in my inbox. And that so cool. far, that seems to be a really nice workflow for me to move all that curation off the desktop. There need to be more apps that can send the OmniFocus. That's a cool idea. 
Yeah, I mean, they can do OmniFocus things and Evernote. And I, I don't know how they do it. I guess they maybe they just use the URL and OmniFocus on the iPad picks up the URL. I don't know how they do it, but really cool. Yeah, I actually want to second that. I love Mr. Reader, mostly because multiple accounts. But also, I used to use Reader, and Same. the That's latest update is just... I Honestly, like the developer was pretty good. The previous version was really good, but this version is confusing as all hell. Like I can't stand it. They changed so, the UI significantly on the latest one. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. as it was, the UI was kind of weird. Like it wasn't like Apple-ish. It was kind of this own little thing, and I can handle yeah. it. But the new one's just like, oh my god, what do I do? How do I do this thing? And yeah, Mister Reader's pretty good. Um, the only problem I have with it is that they don't have it for the iPhone. Oh man. Well, Reader on the iPhone's not bad. I think it's no, actually I hate easier it. to use. Really, you hate it on the iPhone more than I on the hate iPad? It. I'm I'm tempted wow. to delete it and just not read RSS on my iPhone anymore. It's so bad for me. Wow. Okay. Huh. So I'm never inclined to read anything on my iPhone. I know, and maybe it's because I'm late to a party with the iPhone or whatever. I have a buddy that would read. Like the Wheel of Time series, he would read oh, that. Jeez, he would read that crap on his iPhone. It's like, how oh. in the hell do you do that? I mean, I do, lots of iPad, yes, iPhone, I, no. I guess. I mean, uh, that's why. I mean, uh, RSS, unless it's just a real quick dip in to see one specific thing. I mean, I'm much more comfortable on a big, nice big screen on the iPad instead of trying to yeah. muck with it on the iPhone. Well, see, the the way I do it is. I go through RSS. I don't read very much. It's to send it to Instapaper to read later. And the on the iPhone, Instapaper is amazing. And it's yep. good on the iPad too, but like I think Instapaper is like should be bought by Apple and put on all iPhones. It's so good. Thank and you. so that's that's how I do it. But like <laughs> even just the two minutes of going through RSS feeds and sending them to Instapaper, I get so confused in reader and it's like I give up. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I have to say that I, I like Instapaper as well. It's it's just nice to be able to, you know, save it off to somewhere else and then just pick it up someplace later. Apple's kind of trying to kill it in iOS 6 with their their reading list that I think is saving for offline reading, but I I I, I don't know. I'm too, I've already bought into Instapaper mentally. It's I don't, I don't see myself switching. Well, unless unless Marco stops working on it. Well, all, yeah. I, all I have, have to say about it is that, uh, you know, I, I don't care if Apple tries to kill a product versus, um, you know, buy it out and integrate it. But, you know, if it's not as good, exactly, then, you know, they should leave the other option available so that people can continue to use it. Oh, they're, they're not. Apple's not literally trying to shut it down, but it seems like they're trying to obviate it. But right. Instant Paper's got too many nice little features, too. Like, I like to read in bed sometimes. It's dark. So I use the, the negative view, the the black background, white text, and little things like that that, that make Instapaper really good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I can't. Obviously, I can't answer for Marco, but I mean, I listen to what is it? Analyze, design and analyze, build and analyze, whatever the show is he does with Dan on Five by Five. It's but build and analyze. Build and analyze. So I mean, I think he talked about the readalator function or the readalator list in Safari, and I don't. My impression was that he was not too concerned about it like i said can't speak for him yep 
All right. Well, um, let's get back on topic. Um, so are there any other aspects of Agile that you that you try to implement with your clients that we haven't talked about? I mean, do you ever sit down and, and do any estimation with them? or? Yeah, I, I don't consider the... I don't know if I really considered what I call a discovery process. I, I try to remember who I got the term from. It wasn't originally mine. Um, I don't necessarily consider that part and parcel to Agile. I just consider it a good way to to try to understand the pro- the customer's domain, so that way I can give them a decent estimate. Because right. when I do an estimate, when I do a, an estimation given some kind of spec, invariably I end up asking them questions that they hadn't really thought of because there's some whole I end up finding holes in the spec and I need more information to come up with an estimate. Right. Yeah, I, I run into that. And sometimes I actually run into the holes in the spec when I'm building because I somehow overlooked oh, yeah. it. Um, it That's it's, quite the process, right? Because you try to get it when you have a discussion up front, but we're not doing waterfall. So you know you're going to miss some things early on and you have to ask more questions later. Hence the whole constant communication thing. And I'll shut up now. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree. Um, that that totally covers what what I kind of think too is, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, what questions can I ask better next time? But in the meantime, yeah, you just you just roll with it. So, um, what what tools do you guys use to communicate with your clients? I mean, email. We've talked about we've talked about something like Pivotal Tracker, Chili Project. Um, I use there- Basecamp. I've used Basecamp to try to track project stuff. And it's worked to varying degrees. It's it's a little too freeform for my taste, but I had one client that was already set up on it, and that's what they wanted to use. I don't think I've used anything, anything else. Chili Project, Basecamp, Pivotal, email. It's probably the yeah, big phone. ones for me. I've tried oh. Basecamp. I I have had it worked sort of for one project, but the problem is getting people to actually buy into using it. Just like with Tracker, people oddly get confused by Basecamp too. So um, I've kind of given up on using that. Tracker, I mentioned I use internally. Email, sure. Um, Really the most important thing to me is a shared persistent chat. So um, Campfire sometimes, but I sometimes have problems even getting people to use something as simple as Campfire. So so, who do you... Yeah, often I end up with Skype. (laughs) Who do you try to do that with? Who do you want shared chat with? The people that hired you or the people you're working with? I really want it with for the people I'm working with. Yeah. So like the co-developers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, the de- well the developers and and the, really it's the developers. Yeah, not necessarily um, the requirement that the the customer per se. I'd like it. It'd be wonderful if I could get it, but most of my customers are usually too busy to have some ongoing chat, and they're just not predisposed to using something like Propane. But getting developers to buy into that's usually pretty easy. But it for, changes. It also changes the dynamic too, right? I mean, if you have just the developers, it's a yes. little more casual and light. And if yep. you have the the business owner in, they're gonna they're gonna be more guarded in what they say. Not only that, but they're gonna be more prone to misinterpret things. That, that if if developers just talk as developers do, then the business owner who's not a developer is more likely to misinterpret technical jargon to mean something completely different and possibly go off the deep end about one thing or another. So. Right. While I, I really would love to have for small companies I work with, everyone in one chat room it just doesn't seem to work very well. I would love to have a tech chat room and a non-tech chat room, but getting the non-techies in a chat room usually just doesn't fly. So what I usually end up doing is 
having one-on-ones with business people and talking over email and then just IMing on Skype and that's pretty and, and that's about it. And if I didn't say email in their email. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same here. I use Skype quite a bit um both with clients and with um with my subcontractors. Um and yeah, I mean, you guys have covered pretty much everything else that I use. In one way or another, I don't really use Campfire unless the client already is paying for it and wants to use it. Um, the same with Basecamp. I, I really don't care for Basecamp, um, but that's just a personal preference. Sorry, the one other tool I do use, uh, this has been a, a recent thing for me. I've had trouble with Skype. It seems like on some calls, Skype seems to operate in a, a half duplex mode rather than a full duplex mode. Um, for the listener at home who doesn't remember you know, the good old days when we had to worry about this with modems, that means full duplex meaning data can move in both directions at the same time. Half duplex meaning it moves in one direction at a time. So if I'm talking, then the, if the other person starts talking while I'm talking, I can't hear them. They're completely blocked out. I've had that happen with Skype a bunch when I've been remote pairing, and it's driving me crazy. So I started using um, Google Plus Hangouts, and those are very effectively full duplex. Just like Skype, they have their their own quirks and bugs, but um, it seems to make better. It seems to be a better tool for remote pairing for me than Skype. I have not used them yet, but they're they're gaining a lot of popularity in a lot of circles. Google Plus Hangouts for like. I like internal meetings and all this stuff. Several months ago, but then I guess Hipster Evan was using Google Plus Hangouts before a lot of people were, but then all of a sudden um, they got really popular and the performance went straight down the hell, you know, straight to hell, basically. And um, so I gave up on them for a while because I found them unusable. It seems like Google's either improved performance, you know, added capacity, what have you, and be well for me. And I. I don't necessarily find it to be more reliable than Skype, maybe about the same, but for at least one-on-one discussions, I find it far better. I haven't tried it much in groups. Cool. And so the tools I use, I mean, I use Jelly Project for most of the project tracking, but that's more for me. Um, I'll have clients send it if they want to be, and I put a lot of data in there, but like, like everyone said, a lot of those things are too overwhelming. There's too much for people to learn, especially if they're not familiar with it. And since I work mostly with like the actual business owner or the non-technical person, it's a lot for them. And most of them are too busy and they don't have the time to get in and you know spend a week learning. So I use Chili Project. I use email heavily, both from Chili Project itself and just you know writing out emails. Um, I use phone pretty heavily, a lot of conference call type stuff. Um, I don't use chat really at all. The only time I use chat is like Skype chat and that's to send links across while we're on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, Surprisingly, most of my clients rather talk than type. Um, And I think part of that is because a lot of them move around a lot. Like they're going from, you know, one building to another building. So they can't just be sitting there typing while they're walking. Um, another, I'm not going to say it's one tool because there's a whole bunch of them, but another set of tools we use a lot is like Skitch or um, Image or whatever that is. Basically things to share screenshots that you can kind of annotate here and there. Um, those are really good. We use that a lot for actually, you know, here's a bug, circle the bug, put it into the issue tracker, send it through email. Um, trying to think what else and then also kind of to a limited extent we use screencast a lot like here and there even if it's just video no audio just this is an interaction bug versus like 
you know, trying to write paragraphs of how you actually make this work. Um, but yeah, that's, quick, quick and dirty screencasting one is Jing. If anyone's interested, it's free, I think still. So, yeah, um, I have ScreenFlow cause I do, you know, heavier screencasts, but I mean, you can do that. There's a couple other ones where it's like, you know, if you want to record a 30 minute or 30 second screencast, it's free type thing. And I mean, those are invaluable, especially if you're working with like JavaScript type stuff where it's like, it's not like a, a showing differently. Like you can take a screenshot, you actually have to show it. Um, and that's pretty much it, I think. That's most of my tools. The one other tool, I, I mentioned it several apps ago, but we're talking about tools. One other tool I end up using a lot is a cloud app. I used to use Sketch a lot, but Sketch just has a few more button clicks involved for my typical use case. That's I just want to grab something off my screen and show it to someone really quickly. Um, with cloud app, it's just a command shift for... Um, drag over whatever it is I want to show them, takes a screenshot instantly, saves it to my desktop, uploads it, and, in, and then creates a shortened URL that gets put on my clipboard. So all I have to do is go to whatever IM client or mail client I'm using, paste it, and send it, and that's it. And is yeah. Cloud App the one that's like cl.ly? Um, the well, URLs it gives you? Those are cl.ly, that's right. You can use yeah. it for more than screenshots, but I typically use it for screenshotting more than anything else by far. Oh, and um, using it more and more is Dropbox. I mean, all of you guys probably use it too, but uh, a lot of my clients will give me comps or like Photoshop documents of like, okay, this is how we want it to look. And so they share with me using Dropbox because it's easier than passing files back and forth. Absolutely. That's a very fair point. I've had two, three different clients where they shared a Dropbox to me. I So yeah, I've been, I almost take it for granted now. Dropbox is a little bit like air to me with regards to collaborating with clients. Very good point. Yeah, I agree. I use it all the time. And uh, I mean, one of my clients, he got really big into using balsamic mockups, which is a way of basically uh, laying out your web page. And um, he actually would send me the mockups over Dropbox and it made it really easy to, to get the information that way. So, uh, I mean, and the, like I was saying earlier, one of the best things is like you have all these tools, but don't feel you have to use them all. Like, you know, even just email and phone can get most work done. It might not be the most efficient. You might, you know, get annoyed at some parts of it, but realistically it's like the tools and all the processes and all the agile stuff. That's, that's just a means to the end. You know, you just want to get software that's working. And so if you can get software that's working at the end of it and, you know, people aren't killing each other because they're so mad, it's, it's a good project. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the picks again. Um, Evan, did you say you had some picks? I, I've got one pick. My God, I actually picked this one more than a day in advance, said the atheist. Uh, anyway, so um, VMUX. Um, I mentioned WeMUX before. VMUX is not uh, the Russian version. It is um, a plugin for VI that makes interacting with TMUX far less painful. Um, the I, I tweeted about this kind of recently, just in, in, in case anyone saw it, that the problem with using Vim and TMUX together is you have a modal editor with a modal screen manager, a modal <laughs> session manager, which is basically a recipe for modal hell. Um, so what VMUX lets me do is it lets me control, lets me do a lot of my primary use cases in TMUX without actually leaving Vim. So the analogy and the the source of the idea, uh, Ben Mills is the author. He was inspired by by T Slime, I think it is for Emacs. 
Um, I started using VMUX a few weeks ago. I've been tweeting a lot about it because I've been using it more and more heavily. Uh, I even went so far as to uh, add a couple features to it. For So for the curious listener, since this is the Ruby Freelancer podcast, um, VMUX uses uh, Ruby Vim bindings internally. So hacking it is actually quite doable. What I added was the ability to scroll the terminal. because it, it, Okay, the way it works in a nutshell is you launch a terminal from within Vim, and then you're remote controlling that terminal using commands from Vim. Um, and the goal is not to have to switch over to that terminal, not having to control B right or down or whatever. So I added, um, since I run my specs a lot in that terminal very, very frequently, and if there's a failure, I want to scroll up to the failure, I added the ability to scroll, um, issue scroll commands from within Vim. And it, it's... Actually, it was driving me crazy not being able to do that before. Just adding that single feature has been wonderful. And no, Eric, I'm not going to use Emacs, he typed into the chat. I'm done. All right, Eric, what are your picks? <laughs> All right, so I've got three picks here. Um, first one, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. It's a dock for iPhones that I got. It's you Basically, you set your phone on it. It will charge it, all that, but... It's nice because it's a little one. I mean, it's you know size of a small apple of that, and I have it at my bedside table. So my my iPhone's what my alarm is when I in the morning. The nice thing about this one is it attaches to your phone so securely that you can grab it, and instead of taking your phone out and potentially like snapping the connector, you actually pick up the entire stand. And so I use that when I'm like waking up, grab the whole stand, turn the alarm off, put the stand down. And then when I'm actually awake, I just kind of give a little bit more pressure and hold onto the stand to take it out of the stand. Um, it's a pretty neat little stand. It's this one's 18 bucks on Amazon, so it's really cheap. Um, you don't have to worry about breaking it, and it doesn't have. I mean, it's literally pieces of plastic. It's not a whole bunch of bells and whistles. Um, the so then, rel- go ahead. You have to link. Yeah, let me get you a link. Um, and so then, relevant to today's topic. I read this uh, maybe a week ago. It's an older post, but the post is titled Agile Ruined My Life. Very, very interesting. Uh, (laughs) I don't agree with everything he says in there, and I don't know backgrounds and some of the stuff he's talking about, but he brings up a lot of good points. A lot of, I have similar feelings about a lot of it, about there's no definition for agile. There's no like, this is what it is. And it's an interesting read. You might read it and hate it and, you know, get raged about it, but it's nice to kind of look at other perspectives and see, see what there is. Um, and then I found this other link a while ago. It's called the chaos model. Um, it's not very popular, but it's a way, it's a software development that's based on chaos theory. It's interesting in that it's like agile, but it's very, very low key. Um, basically saying like the, the main part of it is there's an issue an issue is an incomplete programming task. The most important issue should be the one that's worked on first. Most important is based on big, which is implied by big value to working users. It's urgent and it's robust and that it's trusted and tested and resolving an issue means bringing it so that it's stable. The whole methodology is you work on the most important issue at any time and you just do that in a cycle. It's very, very simple. And as a freelancer, you know, one person, I found it's very, very easy to explain to customers like, is this bug more important than this new feature? If it is, we work on the bug first. If it's not, we work on the feature first. Um, so the Wikipedia page will probably take you 10 minutes to read. It's not very big. Um, there's no nothing to buy, nothing to subscribe. There's no certifications for it. 
I always get a little suspicious when I'm introduced to um, a new blog as to the veracity of the the blogger. This Daniel Markham guy is, is from having spent way too much time in the past on um, Hacker News. I don't anymore. He's a serial Hacker News poster, um, for better or worse. I, I don't know what his pedigree is beyond that, so that that just makes me a little bit suspicious. Ironically, he's apparently written an ebook, and the testimonial page is a broken link. So <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, and I mean, it's this post was written what, two, almost two years ago now, and yeah. it's like anything you read on the internet, you got to take with a grain of salt. I like, like, I read this one and looked at it as like, okay, I don't know if this is true or not, but the point he's making makes sense. It's logical. I can believe that, or I have the same experiences with that. And that's what I'm saying. Like, don't, I don't agree with everything he says here, but it's kind of like, hmm, that's an interesting thing. I never thought about it that way. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Since the paper, we already talked about it. It's the paper. Interesting. You can't make that check. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go ahead and jump in with some picks. So one thing that I've been trying out, and this this kind of came out of reading Get Clients Now, um, and it it was really that I needed a CRM. Um, I'd been trying to use Highrise for a while, and I just I just couldn't make it work with any kind of workflow that really went for me. So um, I, I poked around, and I kind of decided to go with the big enterprise um, software company in the space. And so I signed up for a Salesforce account and uh, I, I'm really actually liking it the way that it puts things together with, with, um, with leads and accounts and contacts and opportunities and stuff like that. And uh, it's, it's been really, it's been really nice. So uh, I've only been using it for six days. I have eight days remaining on my free trial. And then um, if I'm still happy with it next week, then I'll probably um, start paying for it. So anyway, I thought I'd put that out there. If you have some kind of workflow that you work through on Salesforce, I would love, love to hear about it. Um, and uh, that's going to be one pick. Um, <clears throat> another pick um, is something that I tried uh, last night, and that is um, P90X. And I did the, the chest oh, and back. Boy. I did the chest and back. Yeah, I learned how many push-ups I can't get done in a row. Um, it, it's, it's all push-ups and pull-ups and, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, weights or, or I'm using the um, elastic bands. Yeah, and, like it's in a resistance band. Yeah, the resistance band. Um, I wasn't going to spring for a full set of dumbbells. Um, and, uh, oh my gosh, um, I, I got done. And then the, the way that it tells you to do it is day one is the chest and back and then the ab ripper X. And by the time I was done, I literally just laid on the floor for like 10 minutes until I felt like I could stand up. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it totally wiped me out. Um, just go on long bike rides for that instead. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've heard about it. If if you can stick with it, it works good from what I hear. But yeah. it's, yeah, you're on the ground a lot, just panting. I think that's true of any exercise plan, right? If you can stick with it, it'll work. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the idea of exercise is you push your body beyond what it is. It hurts yeah. and it adapts to it and gets better. So it's like everything that you push hard, it's going to do that. Or you die. <laughs> Don't want to forget that possibility. That's yeah. a fun one. So anyway, um, every time I move my arms or anything now, I'm just like, oh my goodness. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm planning on doing another one tonight. So we'll, we'll see how it all goes. So uh, I hope yeah. it's a different set of exercises or you're going to be it in is. a world. Okay. It is. Yeah, they, they rotate through them over the course of the week. But yeah, if you see my obituary tomorrow, you know what happened. <laughs> Programmer died of exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, here's a tip. Like, if no one's really got into exercise that much, get a foam roller and learn how to do it. I'm actually going to be doing it today. Those things for, like, muscle soreness are amazing. And they're so simple. And it's, like, you basically lay on in certain positions. And it's like, oh, all the pain in my legs is now gone magically. Wait, wait, wait. What is this? It's a foam roller. Basically, think of a big stick of styrofoam that's, like, high-density styrofoam. And you sit on it or lay on it or move it across certain muscles that are sore and it kind of, it hurts, but it will actually work out a lot of the soreness and you'll feel better. Um, when I, I did like a boot camp with my wife and I think like six, six days a week for like six or eight weeks and every, is an hour long thing at the end of it, we would basically use the foam roller for five or 10 minutes. And that's the only way you can actually come back the next day and be able to do stuff. Like, cause it was, it was an intense workout. Huh. Wow. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And I mean, I actually, right here on my desk, I think my dog took them, but I have a tennis ball and one of those, well, it's a tennis ball and a bouncy ball. And what I do is when my feet hurt, I put it under my foot and roll my foot around it on all the muscles and bones and it makes my feet feel better. And it's little known fact, if you actually do that just on the bottom of your foot, you can actually reach down and touch your toes better. You get more flexibility. Huh. Yeah. I think I have to lose more weight before I can do that. <laughs> working on it yeah all right well those are good tips i'll have to check out some of that stuff um the foam roller sounds interesting and the yeah the balls for your feet that 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 makes sense too so all right well let's go ahead and wrap this up um thanks guys for for coming um we should probably start looking into a new um a, a new book club book so if anyone has recommendations just go to rubyfreelancers.com and click on request a topic and just just 50 put, shades of <laughs> I'm sorry that stuck in my head when you mentioned the book club book <laughs> 50 shades of freelancing right <laughs> oh god <laughs> not that no. kind of freelancing <laughs> well see yeah right seeing is how what I understand the 50 shades of books are about it's an interesting kind of freelancing <laughs> like I said not that kind of freelancing um, but yeah, anyway, so if you have recommendations, leave us a topic suggestion, just put book club at the front. And, um, I, I thought I had some other announcement, but I can't remember what it is. So anyway, we'll wrap this up. We'll, we'll talk to y'all next week. Oh yeah. I was going to mention that, um, I'm going to try and be grouping topics together by month. So August will be about, you know, the four episodes in August should be about, you know, the same or similar topics. Um, and, and the same with September, October, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get things that are related. So, um, you know, if you, if you can think of topics that are somewhat related, you know, marketing or branding or, um, dealing with clients or, you know, th things like that, then, uh, by all means, you know, put, put those in the topic suggestions as well. And, uh, we'll try and put together a more cohesive plan, uh, for what we have coming up. And then, um, once we kind of get used to the way that that works, then I can actually start letting people know in advance what we're going to be talking about. So, anyway. And by people, he means the people who are actually talking like us. Yeah, well, and the audience. Then I can post it and say, we're going to be talking about this on this week. And uh, anyway, I'm also playing with the idea of doing like live shows so people can listen in while we're talking, but I haven't quite nailed that down how I want to do it yet. So anyway, um, we'll wrap this up. We'll talk to you all next week. Um, thanks for listening. See ya. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, I went there. <laughs>